first story deals with a subculture of heavy metal music that some feel is sending a dangerous message to your kids. The forces of evil on the dark side of devil right. And I want to talk tonight about the devil and demons and witches and wizards. And we just mix it up with hardcore and aggression and come out with something that we face an original sound. Loud, fast, heavy, you know. Well, what do you got? What do you got? Welcome, everybody, to Riff Worship, where Dylan Adams, Austin Paulson, and I, Justin Swindle, talk about riffs. Uh, sometimes we talk about albums without riffs, but we still like them. Yeah. But most of the time we talk about albums and songs with riffs. How are you fellas doing? I'm great. We got, a, we got an album full of riffs today. There ain't no shortage of riffs on this record. Not a shortage of much of anything on this record. Like, it's loaded. It is packed to the f***ing gills. We're talking about Bad Motor Finger by Soundgarden today. And before Austin asked the question that he always asks, I'll actually ask the two of you, why Bad Motor Finger by Soundgarden? It's the better record. Uh, wow. God. <laughs> right you, out came out, you came out of it's the better record. I was gonna ease into it, but he was just like, you know what? It's the better Here one. Here we go. Tell the me glass, I'm wrong. The glass breaks, the beers are being poured. Like he just did it. I don't think that's the case. Before I answer, I want to flip it the script on you and go, what made you pick Bad Motor Finger over doing Super Unknown? I think Bad Motor Finger has more riffs. I think Super Unknown does have riffs. Mm-hmm. Sure. Uh, I don't think there is really a Soundgarden record without riffs, but I think Bad Motor Finger has more. And I think it is like the first album that like Soundgarden really hit their stride and hit their sound. They hit, they like started sounding like Soundgarden. Not to say that those other releases aren't bad they're oh, just they're just loud different. love is awesome yeah i would agree i think this album has like some of the most memorable uh riffs or like just songwriting for me i like super unknown but i think maybe this album just hit me at the right time and i mean even when you listen to it re-listening to it kind of gearing up for this episode I mean, that whole first half of that record is just one after a f- another. Like, it's Fuck so the first good. five songs alone. Yep. Jesus. And then, you know, they're, are they mostly, it's like mostly all the singles, right? For the most yeah. part. I mean, Rusty Cage, Outshine, like, those are, you know, pretty, pretty big ones. Um, I know we'll, we'll get into some of that later, but personally, I just think it's the superior, superior album, personally. But I'm also <laughs> right. You know, um, so <laughs> what a piece. Of shit. So it's remarkable because that was uh, I have been asked by you, Swindle, many times, like jokingly, what's your favorite Soundgarden record? And I've always said Bad Motor Finger. And you're like, well, you're wrong. It's super <laughs> unknown. And that's basically I'm paraphrasing, but that has been it for 15 years, essentially, like like, no, you're there's been points where Paulson's like, did he ask you the Soundgarden question? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah, and he's like, "How does he not say bad motor <laughs> And it's like, to to what Austin said, uh, I think this album just hit at a right time. I think I heard this not terribly long after I heard Dirt for the first time, um, 
So like it was going from like the heaviness of what dirt was into this, which is like this lumbering, like just nasty, big sounding record. Oh, it's um, thick. It's like it syrup, is, man. Yeah. Uh, and knowing that the, the two biggest singles off the album are the two opening tracks, it's like, oh, God. And then like what I like about this album, too, is it's 12 songs. You can almost split it into different quarters. And like you get a different vibe from each one. And I always thought Soundgarden was a punk band that liked Black Sabbath because there's still some very kind of arty punk stuff going on in this record. And there, but there's still this like boo doo 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 doo, just this like kind of like Black Sabbath volume four kind of thing going on with it. There's like um, borderline doom, yeah, like pummeling oh, riffs. Oh my God. Just so heavy. Some St. Vitus-esque stuff. Just basically like, yeah, they shared a label together for a short amount of time. But like, yeah. St. Vitus is the band that got them on SST. That's is that right? wild. I didn't realize that. Yeah. That's awesome. It is. That's so crazy. I think they, I, and uh, one of the interviews they, I watched or listened to, they talked about it for sure. But I think it was like either the obsessed or, it was definitely Wino, either the obsessed or uh, yeah, they were on yes. tour with them and they got they like basically talked to Greg Ginn or whoever at SST and were like, hey, we were just on tour with Soundgarden and they're really cool. You should like listen to them. Check them out. Did they eat pizza next to him? <laughs> I don't know, but we have. Yeah, God we damn, have. we sure have. We never talked to him, but we sure looked at him over a slice of sauce. <laughs> he was, he was reading a newspaper with bifocals yes. on. Was, <laughs> was sitting there, leaned back, like paper fully popped out like an old man, had his glasses down on his nose, just enjoying it. And like, we're like, God, what a dude, what an experience. RIP Obies, man. What a place. Yeah. Jesus, we've been, ass- Swindle's been assaulted there. Have you really? Oh, he sure was. <laughs> That's not even a joke. Oh, fuck. well, I'm sorry. <laughs> I, it really wasn't an assault. This drunk woman just came in and like stole our pizza and then passed out in my lap, essentially. <laughs> yeah. But that was like always the you never knew what was going to happen at that place. You know, Truly. with two yeah. two venues two like really big venues yeah. for like Nashville hardcore and metal being right across the street from each other. And then a pizza place in the middle of it. You right. were going to end up there for sure. Yeah. And that uh, shit is so close to Vanderbilt too. Yeah. Like there's a, a college right down by that way. Yep. Man, what a place. Uh, but yeah, I mean this, this band itself has had like ties to some of the underground for a long time. You mentioned SST. Uh, you know, some of their earliest releases were on Sub Pop, who are still going today. Shit, one of the guys who was in the band lived with the founder of Sub Pop at one point. All three, like three or two members of the band actually Bruce lived with... Pavitt? Bruce yeah, Pavitt? I believe so. Yeah. Yep. So they have a long history with with that label for sure, uh, with those like first couple EPs and then the, the full length being released on SST. But um, their first major label deal would have been with louder than love on AM, mm-hmm. right? A&M. So that's uh that surprisingly the first Soundgarden song I heard I think was the title track from Louder Than Love. Uh and it's very that's a very like dense sounding song in its own right. Um but then hearing 
you know, years later, obviously I saw the video for Black Hole Sun. I think I saw that video when I was like 11 or some shit, uh, unlike uh, probably MTV2. That much later after the song had come out? Because you, when you were 11, it was what, 2001 or something? Yeah, 01. Yeah, like keep, like I didn't have, my dad didn't listen to Soundgarden. Uh, but my dad knew like some of those bands. I I was exposed to Pearl Jam probably before any of those other bands. Um, but I didn't really grasp music that way till around that time, till I was around like 9, 10, 11. And I saw the video just on a whim and it kind of started to register a little bit. And I was probably in my later teens when I really started getting into Soundgarden just because like I heard, I heard Nevermind, then I heard Dirt, <laughs> then I heard this. Yeah. Um, and uh, I, I just can't say enough good things about this record um, in particular. It might be, it's, out of like the grunge records for me, it's my number two. What's the top? Dirt. Dirt. Dirt yeah. Dirt has to be Dirt. for me. Uh, and I, and it's, it's a toss up uh, just because it's all three of us. And I know Swindle has the same love for the band that I do in utero is my number three. Uh, but like there have been points in time where like I could go number three could be never mind, you know, uh, just depending upon the mood. But it's, it's definitely in utero. Th- those are the top three for me. Alice in Chains in this band definitely like stick out. And it, I mean, obviously we're more, well, or at least for Dylan and I, I would say, cause you know, obviously Swindle maybe came from more of a hardcore background than you and I, but I think, you know, as far as like being into metal and being into like hard rock, I mean, Alice in Chains and Soundgarden certainly were going to be like easy picks. Uh, and yeah, if you're kind of, all right, which ones are like the riff heavy, it's dirt. And and certainly this record, um, it, which is kind of weird to think too. This band had probably been around for quite a while by the th- before this record really came out. I mean, they formed in like the mid four, yeah, mid eighties in Seattle, uh, c- kind of on the from the ashes of like another project, the Shimps. Oh my god! As a kid who uh, loved hey, watching Three Stooges grow hey up, man, you know. It's a toss up between Ship and Curly. Like, I, <laughs> hey, I love them both. Still a brother. It, you know? Yeah, it's, it's still, still a brother. A, still a brother. Yeah, I can't wait until we get our own personal Shimp once Dylan drops <laughs> off the show. Old Curly. It's, 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 it's the bald thing. It's going to be it's, CJ. It's CJ. <laughs> God. So you, in the Shimps, you essentially have Chris Cornell, Hiro Yamamoto. Uh, Hiro eventually leaves, and then Kim Thale who was originally from, uh, I want to say, uh, Park Forest, Illinois, moves out to Seattle, moves in with Hero, and uh, Bruce Pavitt, who later started Sub Pop Records, replaced Hero in The Shemps. That band breaks up. Chris and Hero start jamming together. Kim later kind of joins in with that as well, and that kind of sets the ball in motion for Soundgarden. But Swindle, you were kind of saying off air, I, I had no idea about this. Was Chris was on drums initially? Yeah, Chris, Chris, uh, when the band started, Chris did drums and vocals uh, at the same time, which is wild for a drummer. God, what a multi-talented motherfucker. Yeah. And to boot, the dude was good looking. Like, <laughs> Jesus Christ. It's yeah. like, good, like, good God, come on. Yeah, like, come it, on. That, it, it, it like 
the louder the love cover where it's just like chiseled like from marble <laughs> and then you hear the the vocal range on the guy and the riffs that are being played you uh the songwriting oh, oh incredible actually in uh one of the interviews i think it was that like the story of every song on bad motor finger mm-hmm. chris was like yeah i, I kind of was still learning the guitar at this point because <laughs> he like wasn't he wasn't a guitar player he like played drums that's ridiculous hey, hey man yeah. um i have these songs what do you have fuck okay rusting cage uh jesus rusty cage outshined like oh just kind of fucking around like <laughs> yeah what a jerk damn it what a uh, dick nose artist that <laughs> r.i.p god seriously like i god i hate the guy so much but god almighty god it's, i love him it's kind of interesting to see these musicians you know it's not exclusive to this band but you know looking at their trajectory and their story kind of coming up in an era you know, I know they have a lot of ties to like the hair metal stuff as as many mm-hmm. of these bands did at the time, but they were able to kind of, you know, transcend that through maybe a, a new sound. Traverse those waters. Uh, you kind of we touched on this in another episode where we kind of note that many times you watch a documentary, you read a book. They'll say like, oh, man, grunge was the nail in the coffin for hair metal. But I think that genre, while there are aspects of it that I like, some bands that I enjoy listening to. I feel like it was kind of, it, it had an expiration date. Like some of that stuff, it really, the 10 year mark, you really just couldn't go past that. At a certain point, it kind of overstays its welcome. And so I think it really only kind of has itself to blame in a lot of ways. But then, you you know, this is kind of, this is what did it in. Like, oh, this is no frills. It's just good music without the kind of, I don't know, bloated, you know, bloated element of it. That's it. You went from kind of bloated stuff like Extreme, and then you got to Soundgarden, which was like, it was real. A lot of the grunge stuff was real, right? Like, the world isn't this polished, wonderful place. Like, um, it is very evident that it is, you know, an 80-20 with like, you know, the world's pretty messed up, but there's just a small glimmer of just like enjoyment. And that's kind of what the grunge movement did. Like, yeah, everyone's going to make jokes about flannel shirts and drugs and all that. But who gives a shit? The reason those dudes were wearing flannel that were from Seattle is it was fucking cold. You know, you brought up you brought up Inner Sandman. Apparently, I I never heard the story before. Mm-hmm. I only read it. Uh, it was in a Guitar World interview. Apparently, Kirk wrote the riff to Inner Sandman after listen, listening to Louder Than Love. Really? Wow. They'll come back up in this episode for sure. We were talking off air about this and Swindle brought up the fact that um, Nirvana's Nevermind came out like two weeks before this record, which was this album's original release date. That being September 24th, 91, that same day that Nevermind came out, Blood, or Blood Sugar Sex Magic by the Red Hot Chili Peppers came out a couple weeks prior to that. Pearl Jam's 10 came out. And if we're talking about the Black Album, the Black Album came out like a month and a half before this. Like, all those are 91 records. And then I think 
Al, I mean, if you go back like a year before that, like Alice in Chains first record was out. And I think Dirt was out just a few months later. Kind of another sub pop tie in with Nirvana there. Uh, what that Bleach was on sub pop. This was a, a big year for the style of music, for sure, with all the releases you just mentioned. And kind of heading into this record, it was kind of a difficult time. Uh, I think right after Louder Than Love, uh, you know, Hero, their mm-hmm. founding member of the group, basically leaves. And I think, from what I understand, just reading some articles on this, you know, maybe the writing was on the wall that, hey, maybe we're onto something here. If we want to get to the next level, there's going to be a lot of energy and time spent on this band. There's going to, we're going to be out on the road a lot. And maybe that wasn't something that he was prepared to necessarily commit to. So he ends up leaving the band and, you know, to lose a member like that, a pretty pivotal member in songwriting. And, you know, he's there from the beginning. It's how are you going to replace that? How are you going to fill the big shoes that, uh, you know, hero had left. So they get immediate to, uh, auditioning people. And I think it gets yep. narrowed down to two people in particular. Yes. Uh, that being one Jason Everman and one Ben Shepard. Uh, Jason Everman, if you're familiar with kind of the grunge movement or anything like that, was in uh, Nirvana for a very short amount of time. He played second guitar, I guess, during the Bleach touring cycle, although he is actually on the cover of the Bleach album. Uh, he didn't actually play on the record, I believe. He's credited on it, but he, yeah, he doesn't. That's, that's correct. Yeah. Yes, that is absolutely correct. Uh, and they parted ways with him. And I think a lot of those guys knew each other. It seems like um, Ben knew him in high school or a significant other knew him in high school. And I think Ben was even present to like some of the early Nirvana like practices uh, as well. Yeah, I think um, so. That's it's funny you say that because. Basically, I think. Uh, Kim was at a show, met up with or like ran into Ben and was like, hey, uh, Heroes left the band. Would you mind trying out for it? And, it, and apparently uh, Nirvana had approached Ben to possibly try out for that second guitar slot as well, like maybe the night before. And, um, you know, this would be for the bass spot. So I did read a couple things where Ben was basically out at the, you know, the, the Nirvana practice space kind of on bass trying to learn some of these songs. and. You know, he'd never played bass before. He was a guitar player. Uh, They ended up going with uh, Jason because it seemed like the more kind of logical step. Maybe he just knew uh, what the band was going for. Maybe he knew the songs a little better. But in the moment, it seemed like the more like strategic option to go with Jason so they could get right back to touring again. They toured with Jason for practically like a year straight. But I think while on the road, it became clear like maybe the dynamics weren't there. Uh, they maybe attempted to write some stuff on the road, but they didn't really, there wasn't any ideas being formulated while they were out on the road with Jason. So when they got back, they ended up going to Ben and asking him to join the band officially. And it was his favorite band. Uh, it, yeah. Uh, apparently Soundgarden was his favorite band. So um, there you go. Kind of, kind of rock star shit there uh you you know you mentioned the big shoes he had to fill it's a big man um he is not a little fella (laughs) so big shoes big man easy fit there you go he was much younger than some of these guys so he's like the little brother figure in a group of you know the older guys you're you're being called up to the big leagues now and they take him under their wing 
uh, and show them the ropes. And, you know, I think in a time where maybe some of the wind was kind of sucked out with Hero leaving, Ben seems to have added kind of like a fresh perspective or a lot of like new energy, uh, new life into the band at this time. I mean, it turned out to be a great move because he stayed with the band until till the very end. The end. Yeah. 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 So the very the right guy. Um, I think Kim pointed out that the songs got weirder and faster uh, with with Ben coming on. Uh, I mean, first album in, you have a writing credit um, already. And that says something. You know, when when you're kind of a newer guy, you know, especially in a band that's pretty well established, you're going to get probably like, hey, we're going to take care of this. You know, maybe maybe the next go around, you can bring something in. But they were adamant of like, help, right, please, like, here, you know, come in. This is a this is all four of us, not just one and the rest of us. Uh, you know, everybody's got writing credits on this record. They do, which is a good thing to point out too, because. I mentioned, you know, with Ben coming in, it's kind of like a, you know, you get like a second wind, some new energy. They basically had exhausted all of their songs from their, you know, vault of, you know, what to use. They had used it all on the previous releases, which, you know, it's not necessarily a bad thing. Now you kind of just get to start from scratch and just really kind of play around and experiment, which they definitely did on this record. Um, You know, it seemed like before they were more prone to debut songs live uh, while playing and then kind of working out what, uh, you know, an audience might think what they like. They were kind of uh, good at kind of adjusting or altering things, uh, you know, in accordance to that. But with this record, they didn't really have that luxury. So now they're kind of having to just go off of their own instincts and their gut and write what they think works for this record. Well, sometimes your gut is right. And for this record, Gut was right. Um, it was, you know, sometimes when you're writing, you can get caught up in, well, this part's got to play like this, so it's impactful this way, or, you know, we can only play this this one riff six times rather than eight, um, so it, you know, it doesn't affect this part. And sometimes songs can just be written like that, and you can keep going. Like, the song plays itself, it works out that way, it just, it happens. Uh, and that's not to say this band didn't go over everything uh, and then play it out to see if what worked and maybe what didn't work. But for whatever reason, these 12 songs uh, all work, all work really well. They wrote a lot. They wrote like so or Chris, especially like during the period leading up to the album, he wrote so much music, a lot of the foundational pieces for this record. Uh, he ended up writing like a demo that ended up in a movie called Singles, which I big soundtrack. I, ne- I never soundtrack. saw the movie, mm-hmm. uh, but it's like a Cameron Crowe flick where it's literally just people in Seattle. People find it's like coming of age film of people finding love and success and grunge music in the 90s. It's got Matt Dillon and uh, B- Bill and Bridget Pullman in it. Uh, I want to say. uh Oh man, I there's a couple uh who's the who's the kid from Mask? Jim Carrey. Oh, Not that no. mask. <laughs> um God, I yeah, I know who you're talking about. That's whatever. Um yeah. share. Share. Yeah, um, yeah, share. Share. Yeah. <laughs> share. 
Um, and then also uh, wrote a lot of what would become a Temple of the Dog as well during this. Damn, year. he was so he's working on Bad Motorfinger, but he's also not. You know, he's just writing all the time, and if even if it doesn't fit one thing, he's kind of using it as another thing. He's just challenging himself all the time to kind of like write in different styles or different tunings and um it seemed like everybody had like a four track cassette uh you know machine like handy at all times like everybody when i was like reading some of these articles it seems like everyone is just like bringing things they're working on at all times like oh i yeah i'm at home i'm just writing a riff here's like a part of it like see what you guys can do with this you could say he was hungry for writing and hungry for riffs he was I was going hoping, hungry. For uh, sure. thank, thank you. Someone, someone caught that. I'm a chud. Um, yes. That's a little you, temple of the dog reference for yeah, you, Austin. Could, could you yeah. imagine, you know, walking into a band situation now and someone's got a, a fucking four track? Because, um, like, yeah, phones, we've got everything. We can hum things, tap things out, whatever. Uh, but, like, walking in, there's a four track. Like, hey, here's this almost completed thing. Uh, that I've got done and going, okay, all right. Now we'd see a four track and go, how the fuck do I upload this to pro tools? How do I put it in logic? How do I get it? So I can like sit and learn it. Uh, being it, it's, it's wild to think that he was that uh, prolific with writing of like sp- specifically that time frame that like 91, probably late 89 um, into 91 and seeing how much music came out because I typically forget about that Temple of the Dog record. Um, it's there. I, I know the singles that came off of that. Um, but it's funny to think that he wrote most of that music. Um, and just just knowing that he spent all that time writing and then him just like shrugging it off is like, ah, I just kind of bored just learning how to play. And also like uh, the shit that inspires him is hilarious on guitar too like um uh, what's fucking uh mind riot is the song on this album that every string is tuned to fucking e yeah that's, and the re- the yep. reason that's a thing is because like one of the dudes from pearl jam or temple of the dog because it's like the same yeah. band essentially was like just i don't know they were probably like hanging out broing out or whatever and the dude from temple of the dog was like wouldn't it be really stupid to just like tune all of your strings to the same note and write a song like that. And Chris was like, stupid. Yes. Wouldn't <laughs> that be stupid? So he wrote a fucking Soundgarden song just based on his friend being like, oh, yeah. It, it, like on paper, it sounds dumb, but it makes for unique challenges in songwriting. Right. Like w- we might as well give it a shot. Why yep. not Let's see what it, what I can do? Yeah, that does sound kind of ridiculous, but maybe something comes out of it. And it did. A lot of it did. That's the uh, that's the Velvet Underground thing, isn't it? The ostrich tuning that uh, <laughs> is that what they call it? S- seriously, seriously. Uh, you, you may have to check this, but I'm pretty sure Lou Reed tuned one of his guitars E all the way down and like wrote. I can't remember the track Maybe called the ostrich. Um, and it's. Yeah, that's the first time I heard of it. So when I read it on here. I was like, "Oh, it's the Velvet Underground thing." I think they they certainly got you. You mentioned Velvet Underground. I I could see maybe like Chris Cornell being into some of that stuff for sure. 
Apparently, Lou Reed's guitar was all D's. That's cool. Close. Hey, close. close enough, right? Yep. Apparently, the song is All Tomorrow's Parties. Okay. I love that band. I didn't, re- I didn't know that. Yeah, I, I heard that and like tuned one of my guitars that way one time just to like see it. I was like, this is fucking bonkers. Like, <laughs> how, how does how, it was an acoustic? So like, it doesn't yeah. matter. But it's like, how does what? <laughs> yeah. D- who knew Dylan was such a Lou Reed fan? Yeah, loves yeah. it. Loves Big Velvet Underground head. Yeah, I like that noisy record he did. <laughs> um, All the players on this record the members of the band at the time, you know, it's just it. Everybody has moments to shine. Yeah. I mean, from Chris to Kim, Matt Cameron, Ben Shepard, um, you know, I especially think of, of Chris. One thing that really stands out about this record and every time I've listened to it, where it's like in the car and I'm by myself and you try to sing along to some of that stuff and really God. try to <laughs> match it. Like, try. Your vo- yeah, your vocals they're almost like it's you try to hit those notes and you're just immediately just like fucking like, slaves oh, and bulldozers. Oh my God. He's singing so loud and Dude, so he high. is screaming and it's like, how like yeah. it, it goes from he modulates, right? So it goes from like one range and then it's just like, like through it's the roof. Insane. It's like a tall dude standing up the notes that he is able to, to hit on this record. And you know, from what I understand, it was like difficult to capture. It was like he had to work at it, but what came through on the album? Insane. Jesus. Uh, in, in one of the interviews, he, it's a different uh, song on the, on a different album, but he was like, yeah, I would find myself like when we were playing some of the songs live, like not being able to play guitar and <laughs> I couldn't, I couldn't realize, I didn't realize why. And then one day it hit me. It's because I, couldn't breathe like i was losing oxygen because i was singing so high i like couldn't play the guitar while i was singing uh and one of the it was limo wreck from fucking uh super unknown oh, okay oh, but yeah you like you just even you know attempt it and you're like struggling to most people would struggle to hit notes like that and he is able to just really just carry over some of these riffs in the and the songs like he I mean, was doing it on the early records yeah it's not like oh he learned how to do this it was like huh okay you know the the, <laughs> the screaming life ep like he was doing this shit yeah like come on we should also note the production of this record why it sounds so good as well uh terry date who is terry date who is a, a local uh seattle producer engineer uh, I guess the band had known some of his work because of the the metal church records that he had done. Um, he had experience, basically. He's a local guy. He has experience working on uh, major label records. So they thought, all right, let's let's check this guy out. Um, he uh, had worked with them on Louder Than Love. Uh, but he, like I mentioned, he worked with Metal Church. Uh, he's worked with Dark Angel, Dream Theater. Uh, Overkill, Pantera, Prong, Unearth, White Zombie, and Sir Mix-a-Lot, apparently. Deftones. Deftones. <laughs> there you go, Deftones. Deftones. Uh, apparently, Terry's first gold record was the Sir Mix-a-Lot record that he worked Fuck. on, apparently. Terry so- is, like, I've listened to interviews with just Terry, like, talking about production. He, it's wild. It's wild what he wants, like, 
he's very prone to get these real sounding performances out of people. And like, obviously the Pantera records are a big deal there uh, for the later years, especially like kind of metal knuckleheads like us. Uh, but he talked about how the Pantera years took like 10 years off his life <laughs> from all the fucking Coors Light. Um, but God, he's got great production. Uh, I'm sure he helped out on the remaster they did for the 25th anniversary for this album, which sounds amazing. Um, you know, some remasters are a little like, eh, they just do it to like get more money out of it. But this one, in my opinion, needed it. A lot of records in the early nineties, like they mixed the bass guitar really low. So it didn't, it, they sounded thin. Like you didn't even get the presence of it and doing a remaster on that. were like, you can actually hear the bass. Like I remember listening to the remaster recently and going, Oh shit. Like I can actually hear the bass parts in this, uh, you know, figuring out what was as a kid trying to figure out how to learn rusty cage is like, what the fuck am I doing? How do I figure this out? So like Terry dates the fucking goat. A kind of anecdote to tie it into last week, I think, or not last week, but uh, the I hate God episode. I think on one of the more recent I hate God records, uh, Mike nine was talking to Phil and Phil was like, yeah, Terry used to get me to do to sing for like six hours to a day to get ready to do like Pantera recording. And Mike, when, <laughs> when Phil told Mike nine that Mike was like, I can't sing like this for six hours a day. Yeah. <laughs> like there's no fucking way I can do that. <laughs> God, 15 minutes. That's what you got. That's it. <laughs> Straight from the hip. Straight. What do you do for the other 45? <laughs> He's got Mike nine's got to record a record in like five days just cause he can only God. do 10 minutes at a time. So they recorded this record, uh, during the spring of 91, but they, they had been rehearsing this since like mid January up until the actual recording sessions, uh, which were kind of split up between California and uh, Woodenville, Washington. So they did the drums mostly in California uh, I think there might be a couple tracks on the album where they did everything in uh, Washington, but the uh, Bear Creek Studios seemed like a good time to be. It's like basically like this rural area. Uh, they would, you know, record, but then you can go outside and, you know, play. They would they made up like some Nerf game or some shit like that. <laughs> I read where they're just the points don't make sense, but they also don't matter. And they uh, uh, mentioned something about Chris would basically have a mountain bike like talk about this guy being shredded this dude would like take his bike <laughs> from like west seattle or some shit like that and come out to like miles i think it was like 15 mile track from the city to the recording studio he'd do that every day he, and that's when he would write some of his somehow he would either i don't know if he was recording himself singing or something uh, but that's when he would like write out some of his lyrics or like melodies or something like that. That's rad. Where you like have that in your head just during, you know, some alone time, like on your bike or whatever, um, which kind of comes into play with the first song on the album, Rusty Cage. I guess, uh, you know, if you're in a van for long periods of time and maybe you're just kind of alone with your thoughts, you might as well use it to kind of construct some lyrical uh, content, but you know, Rusty Cage, I guess, was basically Chris being in a van while they're in Europe, and he had thought about some of the lyrics to Rusty Cage. They come back, and then you essentially try to form like music around it. And I guess the inspiration for it would 
be, wouldn't you guess it, some Black Sabbath. Uh, he was like, yeah, I wanted to write uh, some like hillbilly Black Sabbath crossover. Yeah, I love that. Uh, apparently, he was also listening to a lot of Tom Waits at the time. So they were like, how would we approach the, the same sort of themes from the Soundgarden point of view? And so thus you have Rusty Cage, which I guess, would that just be about a van or a vehicle or some shit? That's a- hearing hearing the lyrics now after reading that and uh, just hearing like, you hit me with a hand of broken nails and like all this, it's like, okay, I could definitely see that from like something off of Swordfish Trombones or, you know, uh, what's the two shots from a 30-06? I think that's one of, that's a weights track. 16 shells. So, yeah, thank you. Uh, that's a pretty wild fucking song, but like I could definitely see that in this track now. It seems like there's a lot of weird inspiration for this record, you know, outside of, you know, maybe your Black Sabbaths or Led Zeppelin. I mean, Ben mentions that he listened to Minuteman every day and, and a Duke Ellington record yeah. in, you know, kind of around the time of recording. So, which is really cool. You wouldn't think like some of that. Oh, he's a punk dude. Yeah, that's it's it's awesome. Yep. There was a. A funny story, uh, the bassist was talking about that, and he was like, uh, I, Terry may have been like, it's why, like, why do you want your bass to sound like a fretless bass? Because the the bassist went into the recording being like, yeah, I want my bass to sound fretless for like the whole thing. Uh, and one of the songs he was like, they actually gave him a fretless bass and was like, play this for this song. And he was like. I don't want to play a fretless bass. I just want it to sound like I'm playing yeah. a fretless bass. And it's because they'd been listening to the Duke Ellington record. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. That's uh, I read an interview with him like in uh, Guitar World used to have a bass offshoot magazine called Bass Guitar. And they did an interview with Ben in it. And he repeated that same statement. He's like, you can make any bass sound like a fretless on how you play it. And I went, that's that's logical. Like, I, I understand that. But like. It's interesting for him to say that because he hangs his bases down to his fucking knees. Oh, yeah. Like there's shots of him just like holding the neck next to his neck and he's just playing. He's not a little dude. He's not. He's like, he's almost Nova Selix height, like Chris from Nirvana. Like they're big dudes. And he's like hitting that thing like he's an orangutan, just like a gorilla. <laughs> one, one thing about Rusty Cage I want to bring up too is upon learning how to play a track like this when you're a kid, you're like, oh, everything's in standard tuning. Not no. this fucking song. The, <laughs> Not bass this is, album. the bass is in drop D. The guitars are in drop B. In traditional drop B, not like drop D tuned down a step and a half. Uh, it's like you take the B and you, or you take the E string and you tune it down to B. So like Swindle, you might be familiar with like uh, Black Label Society doing that. Uh, and for me, it was like the first time I heard a tuning similar to that was when I first heard Mastodon. I heard uh, March of the Fire Ants. It, that's where they took it from. They took it from Soundgarden. They just happened to be tuned down a further step. Um, and it adds to the song without it being a gimmick. Like, you know, there's that lower register there, but it doesn't just sound like a, a low rumble or something like that. It's it's actually very musical in how they do it. Yeah, if you... We're a kid in 1991 that was trying to sit down and play an instrument by ear and you picked this album to fucking do it. I'm sorry. I'm sorry you gave up guitar after that. Seven tunings on this record. That's so funny. Well, also trying to, you know, trying to keep up with the random odd meters on this song in particular, too, which 
you know, I don't know if they had really dabbled with uh, much at, by this point, but this record, all, all there's so many weird like time signatures and shit. And I know this song apparently was just complete accident. Like they didn't know what they were doing, but <laughs> it, it felt good and it worked out. When odd time signatures and odd meters are used, right? They work really well. Uh, sometimes bands can do that and it's forced sounding. You know, if it's kind of like, oh, it just transitions to seven really well. Or this riffs in seven, four, which transitions to four really well. That's like the Pink Floyd thing. Um, you know, I think Pink Floyd's considered the the most successful song in seven, four or something like that. Um, Money. But it may, it's not the fucking heaviest song in seven, four. That's yeah. outshined. Outshined. Uh, seven, that's four. Outshined. Yeah. Which, which I guess they also use on Spoonman, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They sure do. So great song. Um, outshined uh there is a this song's obviously in like drop d i think that's kind of like the standard tuning of the record because most of the there's more songs in that or a variation of drop d on the record um what i like about this song is there's a point almost at the the song is almost over it's about to kick into its last chorus where the band is playing there's a there's a transition there that's fucking wild and it's like, you, it sounds like the band's kind of fallen off and then it just completely slams into the part and goes next to it. It's like, God damn it. How is this band doing this? Like, that's just a very well-oiled machine that can do something like that. A very practiced band. This was a, I, I love the video of this song. I think it's cool as shit with all like the gears and the metal works. I love Terminator 2, so it kind of looks that way. Um, I love this song. It's got um, two videos. It, it, that I didn't know. Technically has two videos. The the one I think that ultimately ended up on MTV, which I guess the band did not really enjoy. They felt like maybe uh, the director, who is uh, Matt Mahurin, Mahurin, I don't really know how to pronounce that, so I apologize. But uh, they say he was spending too much time on another video he was directing, which would have been Metallica's Unforgiven. So maybe I can see he, that they weren't too pleased with the initial outcome, but I guess they had sent him maybe or sent the band this alter alternate take and they like that, uh, version much more. Dylan, isn't that Dylan's favorite Metallica song? He loves no, that and he loves no, uh, nothing, nothing else, else matters. Yeah. 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 Oh, okay. I, I love right. the unforgiven. That's a badass song. Um, we won't talk about that other song. It doesn't exist, <laughs> but also before we get too far from it, uh, going back to rusty cage, that song is so fucking fast. And then at the end of it, they just slam the fucking brakes and play the slowest breakdown like. Oh, ever. yeah. Yes. And yeah. it's just so heavy and so slow coming from 9000 miles an hour. Da, 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 da. I would be so amiss if I didn't mention this. I actually the first time i heard rusty cage it wasn't Soundgarden. it was the johnny cash johnny cash version yep, it was the johnny wow. cash version uh which was i think on american recordings three um maybe um which is kind of funny to hear him do it like a lot of his those covers that he did um because i was like oh i'm sure this song sounds like this like a folky kind of song and then i heard it and went oh no i must i must have heard like rusty cage on alternative radio in the 90s or whatever i didn't hear the breakdown until an adult i just heard like that bridge going up to the bridge or like they did the chorus again at the end 
And that's where like alternative radio cut it out. So when I like got the CD or whatever, or it actually may have been fucking um, Grand Theft Auto. Um, San Andreas. San Andreas. That song was on that soundtrack. And I when I heard it the first time on there, it had the the breakdown at the end. And I just like, but I probably just like threw the controller and was like, <laughs> what is this? What, what happened? What's this extra bit? <laughs> I love that. Well, and, you know, this kind of ties into the next song too, uh, Slaves and Bulldozers, which definitely is just like a doom riff. Like, this is just fucking doom. It is thick. Um, <laughs> what, what was that? What did God. he do? Oh, <laughs> he's like a was, fish. This, this <laughs> fucking song is... It's, and it's, it's one riff. It's yeah, great. God one damn it. One riff all the way it is, through. It is like that driving bass line throughout the whole yes. song. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. When he, when it gets to that fucking part and those vocals just rich up like that, I was I was running the neighborhood yesterday <laughs> and I heard that part and just stopped and like had to listen like fuck. There's a lot of these moments on the record too where you kind of almost forget where you're at for a second because it just unfolds into this yep. this jam, right? It's very hypnotic kind of sounding thing and and that's exactly where this song goes where you it starts heavy and then you're into these like more like kind of sparse sounding jam parts of the record uh not to say that they aren't just man it is it is a groove uh chris also just screaming at one point during this song uh vocals definitely a standout part of this track especially uh but perhaps my favorite song on the entire record is this song. It's my favorite single off the record. Every radio shift I had when I when I went to Western Kentucky, I would I played this song like every shift. So if you listened in Bowling Green and you heard the song <laughs> on Revolution 917, I it was I was likely behind the board when the song was playing. But yeah, Jesus Christ Pose for sure. Standout single on the album. Were were you there when the reissue of this album came out or was it were you there well before it may have been because of that. It may have because when was the reissue? Hold on, twenty. Hold on. I have it. <laughs> uh, twenty sixteen, I believe. I would have been before that. Oh no! I actually have super unknown. Super unknown. Never mind. I was gonna say I have the Revolution ninety one seven <laughs> fucking CD copy. I thought oh, it was that's amazing. But this came from my, Big Mike. Gave me this. That's uh, copy so, of the CD. That's so funny. And, you know, they always, they always used to say, like, oh, don't you won't you can't give that stuff away. But I still have a bunch of stuff from working there because that that was a point when they were still like sending you CDs in the mail to play yeah. on it. I got I yeah. had like the the down EP. I had Newstead came out. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I think I had like a record by the sword or something, uh, whatever the latest, the most recent down EP that came out that was supposed to be. Multiple, yeah. Uh, there were any time I went up there when you were recording, and I would go up there. I was always looking for something to fucking gank. Yeah. I was like, oh, surely yeah. something here is like I'm going to take something. I never did. I, I wish I would have. It had already been picked clean. It, it was so funny because they had like a tub of stuff that they were just like didn't care about, like in the in the break room or the the uh, the lot or the whatever. There was just a tub full of stuff that they weren't using. And you could very easily just take some of that stuff. Uh, but I would always play Jesus Christ pose because it's 
there's so much about the song I like where it, you know, it starts out with the drums, which are just kind of so primal and fun. A lot of this record is so rhythmic, uh, you know, not just the drums, but the guitar. But there is that guitar line that it, it almost like feels like a tape just, you know, skipping. This back is a and very forth. industrial sounding track without being yeah. an industrial track. Yes, I completely agree that that guitar line, it almost and this happens a couple times on the record, too, where the guitar line almost feels like it's just a separate voice. And it's like it almost is like a like talking to you in a way like it's this weird pitch, this like the the way it's being played. It almost feels like its own voice part to me. Whittly wah. Whittly Whittly wah. Yeah, dude, it it does sound like Carl from, I would would recreate that part like Carl from Aqua Teen. Hey, fry man. Whittly wah. Whittly wah. I want to. Is that what you were just dying about? Yes, that's exactly what I was dying about. I put it in the notes and I was like, I I would do that. Like, it's got the Whittly wah part. My lovely girlfriend just watched that episode with me. I was like, I need to show you Aqua Teen Hunger Force. And I found that episode and was like, this will be the one to show her. Yeah, I wrote this song. It's called I Want to Rock Your Body. to the brink of dawn. In, in parentheses. parentheses <laughs> to the brink of dawn. And she looks at me after it's over. She's like, what did we just watch? Yeah, there's a lot and of then that. She, then she was like, we're going to have to ease into that one. I go, perfect. <laughs> the 12 minute episodes. Um, That's true. I love, I love unabashedly this track. Um, I like the video because it's like they're out in like a desert kind of valley setting. And I think the colors are inverted a little bit on it. Um, it's, it's a fucking cool track. And it's like, to me, kind of the, of all the tracks on the album, because this is a very varied sounding album. This is probably the most different sounding track to me. With just like how it's paced, how the it does sound like a loop kind of the entire time. It is very like experimental in that, but I think it's so fucking cool. Every time I hear it, I feel like he's gonna blow out his voice because of how high yeah, the, the register beginnings. of which he's singing. It's so crazy. This was the song that uh kind of hit me the most with his vocals. I thought like his his vocals were like super present in the mix very high up and he's also like fucking belting and also a thing about this is like uh the song is not about like anti-christian beliefs or whatever but that like in the nine in 91 that's what like everyone shortly after like pmrc shit and like the christian uh scare of like the 80s with satanism people thought like Soundgarden were making a song about the devil or like some anti-Christian sentiment. But there also was like the song title Holy Water, which if people didn't pay attention and then, and then uh, at the beginning of fucking uh, searching with my good eye closed, there's that like speak and see part where like, it's like the devil says. And so like they had so many, and there's another song that had like a witch chant in it. Uh, Room a thousand miles wide has like the tomorrow begets tomorrow begets yeah, tomorrow. Which they they said in the article, I think through spin, they were like, Yeah, I think it was from that movie, that silent movie Haxon or Hexon or whatever, however you pronounce it. I guess it ended up being from uh like a book from the like late eighteen hundreds or something like that. But um 
Yeah, you know, maybe it's just because it's like explicitly says Jesus in the title that like, oh, oh well, this clearly yeah, this yeah. band is making a statement or something. Uh, you know, they I think I read too where they got like death threats like during the their European tour. Yeah, crazy. Uh, but it's it's really it's like partially about Perry Farrell kind of, or at least inspired by Perry yeah, Farrell yeah. from Born for Pyros and Jane's Addiction, where there was just a picture of him on a bed, kind of like spread eagle spread out a little bit and so he's kind of i don't even know if he was trying to recreate like a christ pose but that's that's how it happened i guess all spread eagle beagle just sitting there this is the also the only song you know there's a lot of writing from each member of the band but this is like the only song on the record where i think all four members are credited together yeah you're right um i guess now we start to dig into the you know, kind of middle of the album here. Um, you know, face pollution, uh, another track with weird meters and weird time. The fuckers in nine, uh, which is not necessarily a very common time used even for like bands that kind of go back and forth. Um, you know, it adds a, a odd vibe to the song, kind of a, a very slick kind of sounding vibe, like a slidey riff. Um, I mean, it is, it's a fast one too. It's uh, it's a little bit quicker in pace. It's also got that lovely uh, ska section with the horns. Yeah, it's weird. It's like it sounds f- like yes, the ska part is funny, but I almost like interpreted that part to be almost like new wave of British heavy metal kind of style of playing in that section too with the guitars. It, just the way it was kind of layered. I don't know, but so there's a there's a later era Dillinger Escape Plan track called uh, Milk Lizard. It's on their Ironworks album, uh, and it's got horns in it, um, and it's very reminiscent. Like the horns have a very similar tonality to it uh, as that. So it, that just that hit me in the head uh, when I heard it. Um, somewhere, the sorry, the bridge for face pollution. Is yes, fucking wild. Yeah, that's that's a prog riff. It, again, it shows like a band that just wanted to. I, I know Kim is quoted as saying, like, I didn't write these songs to be that way. I just wanted them to be a little bit different and kind of quirky. So it wasn't just like 4 4 the entire time. I think the bassist wrote Face Pollution, Ben. Ben's the bassist, right? I think, I think you're right. If he didn't write the whole song, he did at least write the bridge. I think he helped write the next track as well, which is Somewhere. Um, I think he's got writing credits on that one as well. Um, Somewhere, the only thing I dislike about it is the opening vocal line. Okay, like with the phaser yeah, kind of vocal effect. It's a little the phaser doesn't bother me. I think it's just how like the vocals are kind of presented there. That that's it. But like other than that, like the track is flawless. This was the somewhere was the song for me that the bass stood out the most. That's there's there's an out there's a couple songs on the back portion of the record that it definitely does. Like he really sticks out hard. Uh, but I think this might be the track you're thinking of. There's some really melodic kind of like jazzy esque lines in it. So I, I think it's somewhere. And if it, if he did co-write that one, that would make sense. The, the uh, end of the song is another like kind of trippy spacey ending where they kind of just like jam out on a, on one chord almost. Yeah. Like, they've got like the harmonic kind of thing. It like fades out, fades back in and then fades out again or whatever. Um, I got some like Led Zeppelin vibes on this track for when I listened to it a little bit. What era? Good <laughs> question. What, what's your favorite era? 
the one at the end. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Um, another really fucking thick ass track. Yep. Very cavernous uh, reverb on these vocals as well. Uh, Searching with my good eye closed, which we kind of mentioned with the uh, yeah speak and spell kind of weird intro. Uh, Very cool. Um, Little vocal layering as well in the beginning there. Um, I don't know if this is the scale. Is it like it almost kind of sounds like Phrygian? Like it sounds very. I don't know, like a like almost like an Eastern scale when I heard it. Is it on the is it on the Hetfield scale, the Phrygian scale? (laughs) It kind of sounded like it, but. I don't know enough theory to to back that up, but maybe somebody else listening to this might. But I, I really like this song. I think uh, this got a it's got a good groove to it. I can't quickly find uh, which track it is, but either "Searching with My Good Eye Closed" or "Room a Thousand Years Wide" is Kim's first lyrical credit. He wrote the lyrics to either. Searching with my good eye closed, a room a thousand years wide. Room a thousand years wide basically kind of predates the record a little bit because they released it through Sub Pop initially. It was like a single. They had like a, I think they still do it where it's like a single of the month type of club. And so this was released in 1990, kind of leading up to the record. And it was released alongside a, a B side, an unreleased uh, B side called HIV Baby. Um, this was one of the first songs that they recorded with uh, Ben and released with Ben. And then, yeah, it's one of the only songs on the record that doesn't have any like writing credit, like no zero input from Chris Cornell. Uh, so, yeah, you have lyrics by Kim and uh, music by Matt. It's a bummer that he didn't have a writing credit on this because it's not like he doesn't have enough as it is. On yeah, the right. record. <laughs> I mean, come on. Every single <laughs> shit. There's basically two versions of the song. So they recorded it for that Sub Pop Singles Club, and then they re-recorded it for the album. And um, they have, like, the horn section, basically. You have uh, Scott Granlund on saxophone and Ernst Long on trumpet, um, and uh, they are on both versions of the song. They basically very just melod- call them out. The saxophone is very melodic. Oh, at the right, end. yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's... Uh, so when I heard the saxophone on this track, I thought of um, it's funny to hear saxophone on a record like this, right? Because it is a heavy record. It's not just a heavy record. Like there's some psychedelia. There's some like punk rock shit on here. Um, but I always go back to, you know, fast forward almost 20 years with um, a band called Rivers and Nile releasing an album called Where Owls Know uh, My Name or No No Name. Uh, there's saxophone on that record and people shit their pants over it. Like, Oh my God, you're adding it to a death metal record like this. And it's, I go back and hear this shit. I'm like, it's, it's there. You know, what's the big deal? It's just a fucking instrument. It's cool. I mean, you think the Stooges did the same thing? Like, why not? If it sounds cool, uh, fucking think of, uh, siege. That power violence band God. from like Massachusetts. Oh, oh yeah. All, they fucking, it's not, yep. you know, it's, it's kind of similar to this where it's just fucking go for it, man. Like just add, I think there was a guy in the band who knew how, knew how to play saxophone and just fucking <laughs> belted over some fucking riffs or whatever. But I like, I like the, the, you know, the, the saxophone on this record, like the, you know, it just adds to kind of some, some layers. It adds some 
little textures in there. Add some flavors. Yeah. As a great man once said in an episode of our show. I was uh I was in a band in high school and we almost added tuba to yeah. uh, uh an EP or demo that we what, did. We uh, almost what, did it. What kind of band was this? It's death metal band. What of course it fucking was. Uh hey. Of course it was, Maybe. bud. It wasn't a, I thought it was a polka band. Was it it was, we were going to add tuba and layer it in there to be like this really kind of dense, dark kind of thing. And we couldn't quite figure it out. Uh, so we said, it's okay. Like, we'll, we'll figure <laughs> it out later. We just won't we'll do it. We'll figure it out later. <laughs> the, the verse riffs of Room a Thousand Years Wide are like maybe some of the simplest on the album. But I think they, they're not my favorite riffs. It's not my favorite riff. Uh, Holy Water is, but it's some of my favorite riffs. There's something very modern sounding about Holy Water that I like a lot when we get to there. I don't, you know, this is a 12 track record, so I don't want to skip over it because like all the tracks are pretty fucking good. Like this is a, this is like a 90 on a scale of like one to 100 to me. Um, Mind Riot, when I first read the title of that track, I thought it said Mind Rot which is, uh, well, Mind Rot is the name of this really cool kind of post-metal band from the early 2000s. And I was like, fuck, did they pull their name from that? And I just never noticed. Uh, but Mind Riot, uh, cool track. Uh, definitely more of a psychedelia kind of track. Yeah, is this the one we mentioned that has the, the all the yeah, tuning all, all E's? All yeah. E's? Yeah, it's very, very open sounding. It's very, yeah, it's very open sounding for sure. I love the kind of like hammer on, pull off riffs. Uh, at the very beginning of the song. Also, that tune, that tuning kind of makes it like almost like a dulcimer uh, a little bit because there's a lot of droning. But the way dulcimers like necks are, it's like all in a major key. And if all your strings are like the same note, like. It's kind of yeah. a cheat code. It's yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're never really going to hit a wrong note. Right. Um. You know, it's it definitely adds that kind of vibe, that very, you know, droning kind of hypnotic vibe to it. You can almost get uh, a you can almost make the guitar sound like a different instrument just by tuning it slightly different uh, in that uh, this might be with that tuning. Maybe it's one of the more experimental or more of the one of the more experimental tracks on the record. And apparently they never played it live because like go figure they couldn't keep their guitars in tune. Fucking go figure. Amazing. <laughs> Sounds great for the record, but yeah. yeah. Drawing Flies, another fun one, has some more sax appearances on this track in particular. Um, the one thing that I really kind of notated for me when listening to it again was the vocal cadence of the track, I think was like kind of unique, just like the way that he was kind of delivering some of the lyrics on this song in particular. I love the last three tracks on this record, like unabashedly that like, I love the singles. I love the rest of the record, but for some reason, these last three tracks on this album are just fucking gold to me. I, I love that they use the horns to kind of accentuate the, the like where the vocal patterns are hitting in the bridge. They do that a couple of times on this record where like, there's like, maybe it's a drum you know, the beat particulars that uh, Outshine kind of does that to you, where it's like really accentuating some of the, the delivery of the vocals. Um, but yeah, I, I agree. I think that it, it's effective. It's effective on Drawing Flies for sure. And then we come to your favorite song, right? This your... This might be mine too, to be honest. Yeah. Why, why this song in particular? Why is this your favorite song on the record? 
Uh, I just love that. Those all those versions of that verse riff, because uh, they play that riff like five different ways just in <laughs> in the in the verse. But I love that that riff. It's it's heavy. I when I'm listening to it, it sounds like sludge metal. Like it just there's some Iomi kind of style, little like hammer on little like just little detailed touches there. I thought as well, just knowing the kind of connection with thou. I think I think this would be a really fucking cool cover for thou to do. You know, obviously Fourth of July. That? Yeah, you hear that thou? You hear that, Brian? <laughs> <laughs> there's just there's just some parts on here, like the bridge riff especially, um, that I feel like you could really. That would be a, a really cool. Like you just slow it down. You do it the same, but you just slow it down a little bit, thou. And I think you'd be onto something there for sure. The these last three tracks I like so much primarily because they show there's different character traits of the band that really shine through in these last three. And these last three tracks remind me of kind of what modern day Mastodon sounds like. Uh, there's, I would say maybe from the hunter on. Uh, so the hunter once more around the sun, emperor of sand in particular, and a uh, hushed and grim. Um, I can hear that influence from this album on those tracks. Very Bill Kelleher-esque kind of writing with it. And I heard that and I went, son of a bitch, the open, the open kind of sounding notes that are in there, uh, kind of the way the riff is structured. Uh, it's like, oh shit, like that's 100% like modern day Mastodon. It, it absolutely is. Uh, Holy Water is like, I know every time I listen to this album, I look down anytime that track's on and it's like, fuck, like this is every single time. I think Chris wrote this song by, I think Chris wrote the Holy Water riff. Of course he did. Of course he did. (laughs) I mean, Jesus Christ. Next thing, next thing, you know, we're going to be like, oh yeah, he created the recipe for peanut butter cookies that like (laughs) he, he just somehow created that. And like, it just transfers time and space. Like, did you know that Chris Cornell made the first cat video on the internet? <laughs> <laughs> Jesus. Chris Cornell invented everything that brings people joy. He actually I mean, invented, he invented serotonin. Did you know that Chris Cornell <laughs> made serotonin? <laughs> Jesus. And, and you know, I, I love this. This record is so fun and so fucking good and so catchy. You know, I was making, obviously making a statement that it was a relatively longer record. It's an hour long, but it doesn't feel that way. It doesn't feel like a fucking slog. Like, uh, you know, you can listen to it and go, oh shit, you know, we're, I've got two songs left. Like, okay, it's no big deal. Um, Get to the last track, New Damage. Another heavy fucking track. Yeah, it's got a really cool chromatic riff. I love it. It just kind of, descends into madness and it's got like some more wah touches on this as well uh he's fucking screaming (laughs) on this song as well you know it's it's a it's a cool one that verse riff uh another riff that's in nine on this record uh but also it reminds me of that limo rex song that's on uh super unknown unknown it's this poor dude chris cornell this poor guy (laughs) extremely talented um lyrically uh guitar wise uh he's a drummer um i mean shit 
the as I said earlier, the the dude is not hard to look at. Um, had a had a successful career after the band split up in multi different ways. Like Jesus Christ, the next thing we're gonna find out is like, oh yeah, on super unknown, like, um, you know, he drove the band all to get new teeth or something like this. Like we're we're just gonna find out some more shit about him. He pulled uh, five kids out of a burning building <laughs> in, in in the drive from uh, Cleveland, Ohio to <laughs> to Tallahassee, Florida. Jesus, stopped. Yeah, what a Bam Bam Bigelow story and, or something. Ended it. Ended an encore that night too. God, <laughs> he was belching. You could see smoke coming out when he burped, but he still. <laughs> I guess I found I found out that there was another version of this song that they did for a compilation for Greenpeace uh, alternate alternative NRG in 94. And I guess some of that kind of like uh, environmental sort of ethics goes into the recording of this record because they did it with solar power like the maybe the studio was powered by solar power. So um, but the thing about it was if, if you know, the, the comp itself features like a lot of bands from this era. You got like L7, R.E.M., Jesus and Mary Chain. I think even Sonic Youth and U2 were covered, like featured on this album. Uh, but what makes this particular version so interesting is that they collaborated with Brian May of Queen. Like he flew out to the band's like rehearsal space to meet them. And, you know, here's this guy who's like very luxurious car and he's like, dressed super nice and out of place and i i guess he was a very nice man and he was really down to collaborate with them and and that's what they did and they isn't he a fucking rocket scientist at this point he is a, he does have a doctorate i think he, yeah. he has like a meta I don't know if, yeah it may have been in physics or maybe it was a like medical type of thing but yeah the man Jesus. literally has a doctorate and he also was in uh you know every one of the biggest bands on the fucking planet yeah so uh turns out they collaborated with each other and it ended up on this comp. But uh, other than that, you know, the, like you said, the album runs just shy of an hour. Uh, they did the classic thing of writing as much as you could. Uh, there were a, a handful of songs that did not make it onto the actual uh, final cut of the record. You have songs like Cold Bitch and Birth Ritual that were recorded during the sessions didn't make it on the album. I think Birth Ritual did make it on the soundtrack for the movie that we talked about earlier, earlier singles. Uh, but yeah, you know, it's better to have more uh, than trying to force some tracks for the album. But they they came in with a lot for sure. We would be uh, it would be a bummer if we didn't like at least touch on the artwork a little bit for this record. Yeah, the artwork and the name. But yeah, the the name the name's great because it's like they had a bunch of different titles. I think that they were going to attempt to use Samuel um, L. Jackson. That was that was the name of the record. Was it really? Was that a bad was one motherfucker. Of yeah. Oh yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah. so at first I read they were going to call it "I'm Okay Urinal Cake?" Question mark. And I guess this is a reference to like a self help book around the time. I'm God. okay. You're okay. Uh, but yeah, they were one of the ideas was "bad motherfucker," one word. And so I think at one point. Someone was in a room listening to Bad Motor Scooter by Montrose and somebody made the joke of like uh bad bad motor scooter more like bad motor finger because somebody liked the somebody loved the bad the somebody loved the band bad finger 
and they just smashed him together, basically. Cody Thompson was there. Yeah, Cody Thompson was there. <laughs> Montrose, uh, Sammy Hagar, right? So uh, like an early Sammy Hagar bang. Yeah, Ronnie okay. Montrose, Sammy Hagar on vocals. He's on that track for sure. Um, good riff. It sounds like literally when you listen to that song, it's like a it sounds like a scooter, or like a vehicle revving up, which, you know, kind of ties into the Rusty Cage thing a little bit. I think the, the tremolo bass, thing. Yeah. That was it. That was apparently what came out of that. You just just smashing some words together. But the artwork for sure, I guess, was also created by kind of like a fellow musician from the Seattle area, Mark Dancy, who was in a band called Big Chief. And uh, they played shows together. I think there was like some mention of playing a show with Tad at the time where they asked him to do the uh, album artwork for the album. And there was a couple things that he had tried to do that they didn't like, but what he essentially came up with was this like circular kind of illustration or like design, which is basically just 12 middle fingers, 12 <laughs> hands giving you the middle finger that they kind of look, I, I don't know. You really have to look for it because it's all I jagged. I never would have put that together. Never. So Ever. it's 12 songs, 12 hands giving you the finger. And uh, yeah, they just kind of look electrified and jagged. In uh, a circle. I think they're reaching with that a little bit. That's what he says. That's all I can, you know, it's like it's like watching Bob's Burgers and they have the Burger of the Day ad on there, which is like this reoccurring joke in there. And there's yeah. one that you'll see. And it's like, that one's not hitting, man. <laughs> that one's I, you can say it all you want, but it's just not hitting. The uh, reception for the album, of course, was pretty, pretty good. Pretty OK. Uh, it reached double platinum within a few years of its release. Platinum within months or something like that. Yeah. So uh, double. and it, Yeah. So it would sell like. 2 million copies within a few years uh, really received their second Grammy nomination for best metal performance at the uh, Grammys in 92. Uh, who do you think won that I best metal performance in 92 Dylan only imagine who they would have lost to the Grammys seem to have been trying to make up for a mistake made in 1989 for 35 fucking years. I'm just going to take a shot in the darks Four dudes from the Bay area. <laughs> You'd be right. Yeah. Black album, of course, was going to walk away with that God. one. Um, it's argu- It's not even arguable. This record's better than the Black album, guys. Yeah, Sorry. Yeah. Like, I like the Black album. Eh. <laughs> Go back to the Megadeth episode. <laughs> this record was no slouch, though. Of course, you're getting radio play. Those videos were getting played all over MTV, uh, with the exception, I think, of Jesus Christ Pose getting banned at one point just because of all the uh, uh, complaints that they got from, you know, uh, Christian groups or whatever, but fart sniffers. Yeah, there's there's some there's some cool videos. Um, you know, I think it's safe to say that Super Unknown is definitely the commercial massive success of this band. But uh, you know, this is an album that basically sets the pace, as we mentioned earlier on in the episode, um, and probably holds a pretty special uh, place in. Uh, you know, just the musical journey that this band had in their career. I think this is definitely like a very important album for all of those guys. They speak really fondly of this time, like of this record in particular. Um, and I know I'd read some, maybe some interviews later on for like the super unknown album cycle. And maybe there was some like, maybe that's when some tension started to kind of arise for that record. Um, but that's not the takeaway from the fact of like super unknown has the band's biggest hit of all time, which is uh, black or uh, black hole sun. Uh, I almost said black number one. 
uh, has Black Hole Sun on it and like turn on fucking public rock radio and you won't, you know, tell me you won't hear that or classic rock radio at this point. And like, you're probably going to hear that in the queue at some point throughout the day. Um, but I, I do believe, and I'm biased because this is my favorite record by them, that this might've been kind of like a weird peak for the band with like, they were firing on all cylinders at it. Uh, everybody was really happy with the outcome of it. And I started to maybe see that kind of wane a little bit with like, maybe just internal wise with the super unknown stuff. But you also have like, yeah, there's some tension in the band, but you've got the best record of their career, like the best selling album of their career with super unknown, you know, um, is fell on black days on super unknown as well. Like you've got fell on black days. You've got black hole sun, Spoon uh, spoon man. Uh, um, the day I tried to live. Yep. Yes. The day I tried to live, uh, fourth of July, uh, covered by thou many years later. Um, like this, this record set them up for that, right? Like they had to get this record done and out for people to see, to go like, Oh, okay. Maybe we can get, go a little bit further in this kind of like, not necessarily experimental side, but maybe more of a, um, like songwriting kind of style. You know, I think also another big piece of this too is that they probably were playing this. This was maybe like the first record where they were playing to massive audiences that everybody like heard this record, uh, you know, not only on the radio and on MTV, but they were on some huge tours. Uh, they opened for Gun, Guns N' Roses on the Use Your Illusions tour. That fucking like snake bit tour from the beginning, the Use Your Illusion tour. James Hetfield gets burnt to death. Um, you know, they've had multiple openers. A lot of people mad. Faith No More was opening some of those dates with them. Yeah, this is the, I read the longest tour that GNR ever did, but also perhaps one of the longest rock tours in history. I mean, this thing went from January of 91 to July of 93. And so, yeah, you have like a bunch of different bands that were like supporting this tour uh, some of uh, the bands that were asked that declined were Nirvana. They were asked first. They didn't That's right. want to do that. That's when they know? had their little spat. That's right. Yeah. And Pearl Jam was also asked to open this tour as well. Mm-hmm. They also declined. So Soundgarden was just like, why not? We why could do that. The fuck? Did why it, the fuck not? Did it? Alice in Chains open up a couple dates of this? Think, of, of the Usual Illusion tour? I think they were also on this tour. Yeah. God, I mean, it, I feel like at one point you had Faith No More, Soundgarden, um, God, the the really heavy band from the 80s that's kind of like really loud, classic rock, Bob Rock produced The Cult. The Cult opened for this as well. Uh, and then you have like Metallica as an opener, I guess. I don't know if that was the co-headlining portion, but like... Jesus Christ, like that tour literally went on longer than the band lasted after that album. Uh, they apparently didn't have much time off. They even when they did have a traditional day off from a day of tour, they would just try to find a club to play. So they were always playing. They were just so sharp, always doing something. Um, but I feel like they mentioned that the tour that where the, they felt like the band really came into their own as a live band was the, the Lollapalooza tour that year as well. The 90, 90, 92 July through September 
Uh, this is a tour that also included Pearl Jam as well. The main stage had Red Hot Chili Peppers, Ministry, Ice Cube, Jesus and Mary Chain, Lush. Uh, some of the side stage acts, it's crazy to say, but uh, Rage Against the Machine, Tool, Porno for Pyros, Temple of the Dog, uh, House of Pain, and a ton more. ton more. So are you saying that maybe Chris met the Rage Against the Machine guys on this tour? <laughs> and and maybe that like culminated in some sort of relationship later on. I don't. Are we so. saying that at all? No, can't be. <laughs> can't be. I saw an interview on MTV where they said on that Lollapalooza tour that they uh, Soundgarden was covering Cop Killer by fucking uh, Body Count. I remember uh, it may have been the first Lollapalooza tour. Uh, body count was on on it with Rollins band and like I think they used to like call Henry out to do cop killer with them they they were on uh that was like a, a wild story in the Henry and Heidi in the Henry podcast, and Heidi where podcast, they were yep. like talking about bands coming out and jamming the with butthole each surfers other with uh with the oh fake gun that that would looked real and they would have the PA set up for like to make it sound like a gunshot and like Jesus. Gibby's just with this gun at the crowd <laughs> What a band. Bow. Sounds like a horrible idea. I bet it was. It's the 90s, man. You get away with shit. Any final thoughts on this album, on this band? Like, really, what can you say? Have you been, have you been, uh, have you been turned swindled? Is this, with all this discussion? (laughs) No. All right. Okay. Easy. I guess I'll shut up. Um, (laughs) It definitely hasn't turned me the other direction. By any means, uh, I love this record so much. Um, so, so much. It's still number two for me. I, I can't like merge into that top spot yet. Uh, it's going to take a lot of listening. I will say this uh, in listening and getting prepared for this episode, I listened to the first Audio Slave record for the first time in fuck years. Riffs. Riffs, riffs plenty, but like almost 10 years, maybe even 11 years after this album came out. And the dude is still like hitting stupid notes. Uh, I was really going to try and get uh, uh, a like a stone joke in the upon stone review, but it just didn't culminate very well. Um, But this cemented where the band was going. This cemented that the band was something. It wasn't just like kind of a punk metal hybrid. It was like, oh, no, no, this band has something. Uh, This this album put the band's name on the tip of everybody's tongue. Like, yeah, some of the guys in the know knew them from Louder Than Love and like some of their earlier output, like Ultra Mega OK, and were really adamant about like everyone needs to hear Soundgarden. Um, but as it goes, as years go by, you know, you release Bad Motor Finger and then it's all right, what's next? Whatever's next has to trump Bad Motor Finger. And it did. Uh, Super Unknown was debuted top of the Billboard charts. Uh, six times platinum or something like that. Um, you know, it's there, it's probably their crowning achievement record, but it's kind of like describing only so many bands get two records that could identify the band, right? You know, this band just has two. You've got super unknown, bad motor finger. Yeah. I, I mean, I love this album. I fucking picked it. Uh, I just also love super unknown. And I love Super Unknown a little bit more than Bad Motor Finger. Fair enough. You're wrong, it but that's all right. <laughs> Episode's this, over now. This this album has more riffs, and it's like punkier. 
and weirder and a little heavier. Uh, I th- I think this I personally feel like the songwriting is more polished and super unknown, uh, which might take to some people. It might take like some of the fun out of the album. Like there, like uh, there aren't really fucking weird parts like face pollution uh, and super unknown. Uh, but I just think it's. I like it more. I don't. I don't yeah. fucking know, man. I like it more. <laughs> I like it. I I uh, listen to both of them. There's no. Yeah. There's no. I I'm giving you shit, but there's really no wrong answer. You kind of get the best of both worlds, where you're you have like an hour long of just fun experimentation, and then you have the next record, which refined, and it's it's a good record. There's great songwriting. So. Um, I want to hear from you. What did you think? Which one's better? It doesn't really matter. <laughs> why but am I wrong? Why is, why is Swindle wrong? <laughs> Comment below. Love it. <laughs> All right. This is a part of the episode where we like to share some things we've been listening to, some things we think you should be checking out. Uh, I only got one. Uh, I kind of like in a previous episode, uh, I've been just revisiting some older records that I really like. Uh, I'm really stuck on nails, abandon all life. Uh, I'm really excited that Todd Jones going to be making a new album this year. Maybe next we'll see. Uh, we're kind of reuniting with Kurt Ballou, uh, at God city to, uh, the next chapter of nails. So, uh, this was a huge record for me when it came out, uh, just absolutely pummeling, uh, very abrasive sounding album. Uh, it's dirty. It's nasty. Doesn't make you feel amazing but it's got riffs and it rules my uh rec is an album from 2023 uh i think the band name is pronounced mafa m-a-a-f-a uh it's an all-black hardcore band uh again happy black history month uh there's african percussion instruments in this album uh just layered into the punk fast three chord hardcore stuff uh it's fun it's quick happy black history month so i have two this week first off i want to stick with the kind of grunge vibe uh in preparation for this record you know we've mentioned this band i think in every grunge episode we've done and we will at some point touch on this band uh, and do uh, an episode on this band but i want to talk about tad um, in my opinion, fourth best grunge band. Um, and I want to talk about their 1993 record inhaler. Um, great album has a song called grease box on it. It's the opening track, fucking heavy record, very simplistic kind of punky with these really aggro, like just primal driving riffs on it. And Tad Doyle's fucking cool as shit. Uh, the dude, the dude sounds like how he looks, and I like that when bands are like that. Austin, you and I actually got to see him in a, a older band of his called Brothers of the Sonic Cloth when they That's opened right. for Neurosis. Uh, Tad, go check out any of their records, their sub pop outlook or their sub pop output. Uh, God's Balls is always a fun record to listen to. Uh, the debut album's fun. Very short records, very punky. Uh, the second record I have is a black metal record, big fucking shocker, um, by an artist called, I'm going to butcher this pronunciation, 
Narcissus. Uh, they're Austrian. Uh, the album is called Oct 3 Herschlong. feel like I'm doing a Dwight Schrute impersonation here. It's very melodic kind of black metal. has a lot of like traditional folk instrumentation influence. I'm assuming it's probably folk to Austria. Um, but it's very like dissection-esque, kind of bombastic sounding. It's very, the production's very organic sounding. Like it honestly just sounds like a 6505 amp just cranked up really loud and like with the gain dimed out on it. Like it sounds really cool. The vocals are really good on it. Um, this was a recommendation from, uh, I follow this uh, Twitter page called New, Mil- uh, New Millennium Cyanide Kep. And he's always like, throwing new shit out there to listen to. And this was just one I happened to see and catch on to. Great. Well, check it all out. Uh, Links to those songs can be found in this episode. Uh, We'll be back next week with some more riffs to talk about. Follow us at distortion 891, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, uh, where you can follow us for all updates on this show, as well as our uh, sister program, vocal distortion, which airs live on FM 89. 6 p.m. Central. Uh, Let us know what you want us to talk about next. You can comment below. We'd love to chat with y'all and cover some albums that you really love. But until then, I'm Austin for Dylan Swindle. You've been listening to uh, Riff Worship. So, bye.